Hey everybody, welcome to the latest edition of Volley. I'm Carolyn April, and as always, looking for my good buddy Seth Robinson. Seth. Hey, I feel like this is the first time we've talked all week almost. It's been we we both been kind of yeah. slammed this week. I haven't talked to you very much. I know it's been a crazy week. Really crazy. A lot of good work getting done. I'm kind of psyched now to settle in for some more March Madness this weekend. So get out of the work mode and into basketball, even though I'm bummed that my Northwestern Wildcats lost last week. But it was yeah, did you have them uh, penciled in all the way to the championship? Oh, of course I did. Are you kidding me? <laughs> hey, I was just happy they got in. Only the second time in their existence. And they won one game. And, uh, you know, I cheered and all, but, uh, now I'm going to, now I got to root for the, for the Princeton team. What the hell? Yeah. Is that right? They've only been in twice. That's surprising. I, I didn't yeah. even know that as an alum, I had no idea, but, um, you know, they were terrible in all sports when I was there and, mm -hmm. uh, um, but I had no idea, but yes. And in fact, it was recently apparently, and I must've been, I don't know where I was on what planet at that point, but yeah, only the second time. So, mm -hmm. you know, maybe it's a new trend. We'll see. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Well, speaking of trends, we want to talk about a trend that's been developing uh, over the past decade in different ways, and I think it continues to evolve, and that's software development. We've touched on software uh, from time to time on Bali here. It's not something that has historically been a real um, core strength of CompTIA. We focused a lot more on infrastructure and cybersecurity, but with everything becoming so blended, it's hard to not pay attention to each different area. And so we're starting to look a lot more at software development. And we're very fortunate to have a guest be able to join us here who is now part of CompTIA. Uh, joining us today is Nate Garner. He is CompTIA's Chief Innovation Officer, and he comes to us by way of CompTIA's acquisition of TestOut. And Nate, we're really glad to have you on the podcast. I'd love to hear a little bit about what TestOut was doing and what they kind of bring to the table for us now, and then what you're doing in your role. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, TestOut uh, has been in business for 30 years now. And I, I always tell everybody that TestOut was a training company that was starting to chase certification. And then when CompTIA started approaching us about this acquisition, CompTIA was coming from the opposite side, that CompTIA has been a certification company that has been in recent years trying to get more into the training side of things. And so it's this huge synergy that both of us get to come, come together with our strengths from both sides that bring this package that I don't think anyone else in the world can offer. That's I very should, cool. I think yeah. we should record that, and that can be our little boilerplate <laughs> marketing marketing that goes out there. Nice job, Nate. <laughs> Welcome to the show. <laughs> so, thanks. So, yeah. So, Nate, what are you what are you looking at now in your role as chief innovation officer? What are what are some of the things that you're starting to explore uh, as, as you're thinking about both the training side and the certification side? So uh, with TestOut, I was there for the last 20 years of their existence, and uh, I rose up through the engineering ranks as a software engineer myself and uh, took the lead in so many of those projects about defining what we needed to do in the future, that that's the role that I've been given at CompTIA as well. And so now as chief innovation officer, I work directly with the CEO to figure out what are the new things that we need to be a part of. And a couple of those things are we're looking at a new kind of assessment slash training platform that uh, will give people a new way to get in and 
be assessed on skills that they're still developing that they haven't even finished to a level of, of certification yet and can get assessed and trained all together in one package. Um, there will be a lot of AI involved in figuring out how, uh, how far someone has progressed and where they need to go next. And uh, it'll, it'll be really revolutionary, something that uh, nobody else has. Oh, that's super exciting. I was just going to jump us into our main topic here now with, uh, you know, after we've heard what Nate's all about. And Nate, it sounds like you're going to be the perfect person to kind of go through this high level discussion with us on software development. Um, like I said, we've mentioned this a few times on Bali before, but we want to dig into it here because I think software development used to be way back when the domain of just those companies that were producing software to sell, packaged mm -hmm. software. Mm -hmm usually large vendors, uh, and, and most everyone else was just a consumer of software. They would buy that software, they would install it, they would run it. Um, you know, we've seen kind of a gradual shift towards more and more companies doing their own internal software development. And then that gradual shift, I think, turned into a tidal wave. And most companies today are looking at some kind of software development, whether that's just a little bit of web development and putting a presence out on the web or whether that's developing internal tools. So I think we wanted to take a look at it and, and talk about this huge demand because software developers by far are the most in-demand technology job out there. Um, so it's, it's definitely good to understand this space. And I thought we'd kick it off by just talking about what are the drivers? You know, as we've got companies looking more and more at doing their own internal software development, what are some of the things that you think cause that? You know, what, what are they trying to achieve by doing their own software? You know, it's interesting uh, that you mentioned that, that all these uh, companies that are not necessarily tech companies are, are getting involved in hiring engineers. And, and I can really validate that. I live here in uh, Utah in an area that's nicknamed Silicon Valley, or sorry, Silicon Slopes. Silicon Valley's in Nevada, Silicon Slopes up here in the mountains in Utah. And we've got some really big companies here with Adobe is one of the ones, a uh, major player here. Microsoft has offices here. Um, and as I walk around through my own neighborhood, half the neighborhood is software engineers. But when you talk to them, only you know less than half of them uh, work for the big players. So many of them work for non-tech companies that just happen to hire an engineer. And I think the trend that has made that happen is that we've really simplified the technology stack over the last 10 years through lots of standard platforms that don't require you to have a major science degree, a major math degree. And so you can get in and uh, almost like a UI designer, pull together elements of user interface and then have really standardized communications back to a server where the server connects to common databases. And all of those pieces have enough commonality between them, between every company that's using them, that it's much easier for people to get involved and to not have to have a full engineering staff with all kinds of management that understands all of the details about how software works and have an everyday manager that maybe is a project manager or a, a, a human resources person at your office that is over your software engineer that works alone. That's interesting. So you you mentioned the you know the the, the on ramp has gotten simpler for for some, and and I imagine that there's tons of complexity that still exists that requires some of those higher level degrees. But can you walk us through like what? your typical software team might look like then and, and kind of give us an idea of 
which skills are at maybe the higher end of um, requirements, educational requirements and, and certification requirements, and then what may be at the, the base level and, and what the trajectory might be to kind of move along. Like, what do these teams look like? When I think software developer, I think, you know, somebody who's sitting there writing code all day, but obviously it's a lot more um, nuanced than that. And I'm kind of get, would like to get a sense of what you mean when you talk about the different roles. Yeah, the, the most common role we hire for at, in, in any company, uh, we're starting to call that full stack software engineer. And the idea of full stack is that there's layers to the whole software development platform. So you've got the front end user interface. That's, that's the stuff that your users are going to see. The people that interact with your software, they need to create that visual element. Then there's a back end, which is the servers, the, the things that are going to be storing the data, receiving messages from the system. And those used to be separate roles. You would hire somebody for the front end, you'd hire somebody for the back end. But now we kind of expect somebody to do both of those. Mm -hmm. And so we call that full stack, meaning that, that they handle those two pieces and kind of everything in between, all of the glue. And so your teams can be much more... Uh, centralized and smaller because of that trend. So oftentimes you still hire a couple of engineers so that they can work together and bounce ideas off of each other. And then it's still traditional to have at least one QA person testing your software and, and usually have fewer QA than you have engineers. But even with the idea that full stack is, is you handle all those, the, the front end to the back end and everything in between, it can also mean that you have them do the QA role as well. Uh, the parts that you mentioned, well, what, what requires the highest education still? Data engineering is the part that still really requires so much specialized skill that it's not the kind of thing that you just jump on YouTube and become self-taught, you know? But, but the full stack engineer, there are parts of it that people do that they, they just get on the web, they do a little bit of research and they start doing their first um, contract jobs and, and they just go at it. And somewhere in between, they tend to get to the point where they need a little more education. And uh, one of the things that's risen up over the last decade to fill that need is code camps for people that don't want to spend four years getting a degree and want to get out into the workforce quickly, but they, they can't just navigate that whole thing through YouTube. And uh, code camps tend to be three to six months in duration. They're quite expensive. They're not necessarily cheaper than college, but they're faster. And they focus on that full stack idea. Here's what you need to do at the front end. They start there and people can do just the front end and walk out into the workforce and say, I'll, I'll let somebody else do back end or I'll pick it up later. And then the back end tends to be the skill that they pick up last. Yeah, I think that we see a lot of that in the job postings that, you know, the at the highest level, you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics or something like that, and they just have this big umbrella term for software developer. Um, and a lot of people that don't have maybe a lot of experience just kind of think that a software developer is a software developer. But like you've described, there are lots of different types. Uh, there's a little bit of this gravitation towards the full stack. But at the same time, a company could break it up a little bit more. Uh, they could focus on the parts that are most important to them. They could outsource some of the other parts. Um, and, and so they can kind of handle the architecture that way. And there's so much granularity in the software developer roles that it's a little difficult to talk about, you know, without getting into the details and kind of understanding which type of software developer are you talking about, which languages, which frameworks, you know, are, are the ones that are important to you. 
What about something like DevOps? We mentioned before that all of these disciplines under IT are starting to blend. And I think DevOps has become well accepted as the, the intersection between software development and traditional IT infrastructure. Um, have you seen that be pretty well adopted? Are a lot of companies trying to stand up some part of DevOps as their software development practice? There are uh, niches that the big players are trying to fill to help to not need a specialized team for that because it is one of those things that crosses those boundaries that requires a specialized skill set. And we haven't seen as much success as you would hope in having those full stack engineers take on the DevOps piece as well. So DevOps is basically, you've got to take your code, build it into an executable package that's going to be delivered um, through generally the internet on some kind of server somewhere. And that requires a lot of uh, prep work in being able to ensure that you meet your SLAs, your, your uptime guarantees. And so you've got to have people that are watching to make sure that the servers, uh, even if they're cloud-based, don't run out of memory, don't run out of CPU, that um, that updates can be rolled over in a way that doesn't take the system down while you're doing the update. And there's so much involved in that that the software engineers kind of shy away from that and go, hey, that's that's not my strong suit. But you've got IT as well that tends to work on internal projects generally. And so this is an outward facing thing that doesn't fit their needs, uh, uh, their skill set as well. And so there are a lot of packages that are coming out in the cloud where you can go to Microsoft and they've got a, a Microsoft DevOps that you can use in the cloud that automates a lot of that and uh, helps you to not have to have specialized individuals. So that might be a role where the bigger companies hire DevOps teams and the smaller companies just use an online package. Mm. Sounds a lot like a general contractor in construction to me who then works with all the subs uh, who are specialized in various areas. Interesting. Um, we're, we're talking about skills, and I think that's a, the, a good segue into into what we're what we're going to discuss next. And I think Seth, you mentioned that in the you know the job posting, software developer is the most ubiquitous, and and it's out there whether it's broken down into its various types of roles or it's just software developer that's in the listing. Um, what are the big skills though that are in most demand that you're seeing today? Nate, and, and, and how hard are they to find? You know, what are some of the strategies for filling those holes in your organization with somebody who has the right skills um, to fill the software needs that you have? It's interesting how because we're trying to, to turn every engineer into a multifaceted individual, that means that you get a lot more of the same job posting as far as title is concerned. And um, so it, it, it makes it seem like that's everybody. And in a lot of ways, we start out there and, and look for the most common skill sets that we need. And then we, after we're halfway through the interview process, bring up all the little things that are different. But honestly, in the industry, um, there, there's a shortage of engineers that are available. Mm. So um, I can remember the day 20 years ago when we, we put out a, a job ad and we'd get 200 resumes in the first day. And now you put out an, a, a listing and maybe you get five. Wow. <laughs> and then you go out and do a little bit of recruiting and you build that up a little bit more. And, and, but it, um, most people are employed, despite the downturn in the industry, you hear about all the layoffs. The people that are getting laid off are not necessarily the software engineers. 
So you hear that it's a tech company, somebody like Facebook is laying people off or somebody like Twitter, but they're not necessarily laying off their core engineers. And so that title, just that one job title, full stack software engineer is actually still really hard to find because the good people are taken. <laughs> We'd be a little remiss if we didn't talk uh, a bit more about artificial intelligence and especially as a skill here, you know, I, the whole world is talking about AI and how it's going to take over everything and, and all the new capabilities that there are. And I think a lot of people tend to assume that that's going to translate into a need for AI skills. And in a way it might, but I'm not sure that it translates into a need for coding AI algorithms, uh, you know, much in the same way that we've talked about blockchain and blockchain is going to be this underlying technology, you know, if it comes to fruition and not every company is going to be coding blockchain, they'll just be using applications that might have blockchain kind of embedded in it. Do you see the same thing playing out for AI, that AI is going to be embedded in a lot of applications and there are definitely going to be people coding AI and machine learning algorithms but a lot of companies are just going to be using those and they might need to have enough expertise to understand the output and understand exactly how the application works, but they're not going to be actually hardcore coding AI algorithms. I love the comparison that you made to blockchain because I think they're going to have very, very similar trends. So mm -hmm. blockchain, blockchain started with the, the Bitcoin net, uh, chain and then every other coin that, that was built off of that afterwards. And, but it was pitched for a long time that, that every business would be using blockchain in every technology. And what we found over time was that it really doesn't actually fit in every technology. And on top of that, that even if it has a good use case, that blockchain is the most inefficient way to handle your data. The benefit that you get out of it is the high security, but it comes at a cost because the security that you get in blockchain comes from the constant um, creation of new blocks that are all secured by new hashes that are all chained together. And so the moment you stop securing your chain, your chain becomes breakable. So companies had to step back and go, well, wait a minute. Just because data is secure there doesn't mean that I have the funds or the ability to run the infrastructure that makes all of this work all the time. And so most companies have pulled back and there's actually very few uses for blockchain right now outside of the financial system. You're going to see the same trends in AI where you're going to see everyone diving in thinking, we don't want to miss the boat. I, I have to have some kind of an AI piece. And we'll see over time that in some cases that really does improve products and in other cases it doesn't add any value whatsoever and we'll find that adding that value even in the places where it makes sense is costly unless you're using a big provider and so companies like OpenAI that are really um, taking the world by storm right now they will become the big provider in most places will have a software engineer that will interact through an API to someone like OpenAPI, where they'll they'll send in some text to OpenAPI, it will send back a response, and they'll display it as if they had created that text themselves and maybe put a little disclaimer that it came from OpenAI. But very few companies will get involved in, in actually engineering the underlying technology that creates artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm.
I think uh, that's good news for a lot of people out there who are terrified that they're going to lose their jobs over uh, <laughs> over AI. So uh, I'm going to take that as a good thing. Um, uh, I think the last thing we wanted to talk about was organizational behavior, Seth. Yeah, and challenges around software yeah. development. Well, you know, I guess for, I, I'm, I'm going to assume organizational behavior means how you um, structure and and maybe secure your software um, and. and Correct me if I'm wrong here, Seth, in your intent with, with that discussion point. But um, as an organization or as a company, and you're trying to figure out whether software development is part of what you should be doing, because as Seth said at the top of the of volley here, you know, it used to be the domain only of those who actually built software that they were going to sell. It was their it was their business. Now everybody else is kind of getting involved and dabbling. Um, there's got to be some downside to that. If you are a company that is not a software company, who's now taking on some software development in-house, how you, A, make sure you're doing it correctly, you have the right people, B, make sure that you are doing it safely and securing it, and then having it kind of be part of the DNA within your organization. Um, it seems to me that all of those kind of best practices need to be in place if you're going to be a company that does software development that isn't a software development company. Absolutely. That's that's one of the biggest challenges, even for those companies that are software development companies, is staying on top of the security and the legal ramifications. Mm. Obviously, the hackers are always out there trying to tear things down and break into your systems, and they get more sophisticated every time. And, and for every fix that we make and every uh, wall we build up, they'll find another way around. So you can't just take care of security and then walk away and think that you're good for the next decade. Um, but there's a whole legal side to it as well. And unfortunately, that the legal landscape is a challenge because it's different for every jurisdiction. And so not only is America different from Europe, but you've also got inside of the United States, you've got individual states that are taking uh, and creating new laws that you're expected to follow because you have customers in that state, even if you don't operate uh, an office in that state. One of the challenges that I'll, I'll just bring up as a specific example is uh, COPA laws. So COPA is Child Online Privacy Protection. And the laws are about whether or not you have to try to get um, an adult to verify that it's okay for their child to interact with you. And that mostly comes into play when you're talking about getting personal data from a child. So having a child play a game online that you created doesn't really bring up much legal uh, issue. But as soon as you ask the child their name or a phone number or an address or anything like that, that law comes into place and you have to verify that you are dealing with a minor or a, an adult and that the adult has given permission for their child to participate in this activity. And every state that's starting to create one of these laws gives you new things that you have to take care of and be aware of all together with all the other states. And they even recommend some of these things about here's what your user interface should do and what it should look like. So staying on top of that is a real challenge. And if you're not a technology company and you don't have a department checking on all the legal and um, security uh, risks, having just one developer sitting there that's writing something and putting it out there on the internet, you might be um, subjecting yourself to risks with this COPA law that you don't even know exists because it's not your business. So that's one of the places that you, you 
if you're going to be doing anything online and adding any kind of an, a presence for your company, you at least ought to have some consulting counsel coming in and helping you to recognize those, those steps that you need to be adding to make sure that you are both uh, secure and legal in all your actions. Well, Nate, uh, I think it's pretty clear that we've only scratched the surface of software development here. I think there's a lot more that we could dive into, and we probably will dive into it in the future. So we really appreciate you joining us. Uh, we hope to have you back again soon to dive into some of these areas. And we hope that you'll stick around uh, now for the final segment of Bali that we've been kicking off here, which is Career Spotlight. Uh, and the person that we have in Career Spotlight is not a software developer, but I think we're going to be able to talk about how an entry into some of these traditional IT roles can probably set you up even for a software development career. So this is Daniel, and he is an IT support specialist. Uh, so I decided to join the military after high school because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And so it bought me some time to really think about what I like and my passions. I was very proud of my service in the military, but it makes me even happier to be financially stable and be able to support my family using my IT skills. Another good story. I love these heartwarming stories. They make me happy. Um, seems to me that military service really prepares you for um, a lot of possibilities in the world of IT, as we've seen with some of our um, folks who have joined us on Spotlight. Um, and this young man obviously uh, chose that path as well. And it sounds as though he's at sort of at the base level as an IT support specialist in his role right now. Um, but that, of course, at his young age is just kind of a springboard if he wants to move up the ladder. And it's just a nice example of how you can segue from some of the skills that you may learn in one, in one job opportunity to another at its basic level. And then he's, you know, the sky's the limit where he could move up and, and, and maybe even one day get into some software development uh, activities. Yeah, he, he talks about his passion uh, yeah. for technology. And I think that when we're looking at students, especially and talking about potential careers in technology, a lot of them might have some interest in software development. They're using apps, they're playing video games, and they think maybe that would be cool. Um, and they, they don't maybe understand what the path would be to get there. But IT support specialist has been the traditional pathway into a lot of infrastructure stuff. But I think we're seeing companies use that as a pathway into software development as well, along with cybersecurity and data. Uh, Nate, are you seeing some of the same thing? There's so many different angles you can come at to come into this industry. You know, from what we've talked about on this call, one of those needs that is a challenge for companies is the DevOps piece. And so if you start like he has just started out as an IT specialist, then that's one of the areas that you start to gravitate into because it's a need that's not necessarily being filled well. And as you do that, then you're working directly with the software engineers and with the IT folks and bridging that gap. And it does lead to an opportunity where if you wanted to jump into the software engineering, you've got that, that piece that, that you already know how to interface with them and you know their needs and it allows you to jump maybe into working on the back end of software. And so you can just spread that direction. But uh, I see people all the time that uh, are working in this industry as software engineers that do not have a computer science degree. Um, a lot of times they start out in mechanical engineering and, and decide that that's not for them. Uh, we get business majors and people that just go and, and uh, that, that old adage of see a need, fill a need. 
they start filling needs and those tend to be technology related and they work their way into software engineering. Well, very cool. Um, there's a lot of opportunity out there. You know, we've been talking about how much demand and we think that that demand is going to continue. So uh, hopefully we see a lot more people uh, like Daniel trying to follow their their passion. So Nate, thanks again. Uh, this was a great conversation. Really looking forward to talking to you more now that you're here at CompTIA. Thanks as always to our producer, Andrea McMillan and Carolyn. Here's hoping that our uh, next week or two is a little bit calmer than this last week. Amen to that. All right. Thanks, Seth. Bye-bye.